Hello, I am Rosemary Adamson with the ATS section on Medical Education Podcasts. This is the second in a series on the validation of assessment tools. In the first podcast, I described MESIC's framework for validity evidence. In this podcast, I interview David Cook, who is a professor of medicine and medical education at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in Rochester, Minnesota, where he is also the director of research in the Office of Applied Scholarship and Education Science. Dr. Cook, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, you know, given your um, expertise in this area, I thought it'd be great if we could um, get uh, your opinion on some some parts of um, this use of the term validity and what exactly are we doing when validating uh, assessment tools. Um, and so, I've got a I've got a few questions for you, and I'll I'll start with. Um, uh, what are your pet peeves about how people discuss um, the term validity um, and, and how they do research on the validity of assessment tools? Yeah, so yeah, that's a great question because um, I do have a, a few pet peeves. Most of them have, have arisen because of the works that I've read in uh, reviewing the literature. For example, I did a review of simulation-based assessments where we read over 400 articles. And these are some of the issues that repeatedly came up in those studies, and I've seen them in other fields of uh, education assessment as well. Uh, Perhaps the most common is that uh, investigators will label an instrument as validated. And the problem with that is that the word validated can be viewed in the same way that we might view the word evaluated. Uh, Evaluation and validation are both processes, and when we say that a course has been evaluated or an instrument has been validated, all it means is that we have applied that process. It doesn't tell us anything about uh, what that process was. It doesn't tell us anything about the results or the direction of that uh, process. I think if we started talking about evaluated courses in education, the first thing that would come to our mind is, well, what did the evaluation show? What methods did you use? Was the evaluation good or bad or mixed? And yet we drop the term validated instruments all the time without giving any thought to what we're actually talking about. Uh, I think most of the time when we use the word validated instruments, we mean that in some way, shape, or form, there were some favorable uh, findings to support the use of the instrument, but that's actually not clear. So my first pet peeve is that uh, authors and investigators uh, should not use the term validated. We should talk more specifically about the evidence that was collected and interpret that evidence. Second, I think uh, investigators need to use a, a validation framework to um, plan their studies and then interpret the results. Uh, I know you recently shared with your audience uh, MESIC's framework, which is great. It's about 27 years old now, but still very much in vogue. As of uh, two years ago, it was uh, the uh, framework espoused by the American Education Research Association. So it's certainly a, a reasonable one to use. 
the older uh, framework, what we, I might call the classical framework, which talked about content validity, criterion validity, uh, construct validity. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that framework. It's not as contemporary, perhaps, but if authors use it and apply it well, it, it works just fine in most cases. Uh, perhaps the most modern framework is Kane's framework, which is a bit more difficult for, for uh, investigators to wrap their brain around, and I'm not going to go into that today. But um, the bottom line is I don't care which framework authors use. I just care that they use some type of framework to to uh, to plan their studies and interpret the results. Third, it seems an often, oftentimes... Uh, investigators will focus on easily accessible validity evidence rather than trying to collect the most important validity evidence. Uh, you've talked about sources of validity evidence. I'm not going to go into that, uh, but I will uh, point out one particular uh, type of evidence, which is what I've called the expert-novice comparison. Uh, we see this time and time again in the literature. Basically, we would have... Uh, learners of different groups uh, take our assessment and then contrast those groups to see if the scores uh, differ uh, across training levels. For example, we might have medical students, uh, junior residents, senior residents, and then attendings uh, take the same test. And then if we see an improvement from medical students to junior residents, from junior residents to senior residents, and then from senior residents to attendings, we would say that that is evidence to support um, the validity of our scores and interpretations. Uh, using the classical framework, people usually call this construct validity. Uh, Messick's framework would call that relationships with other variables. Uh, the problem with this argument is that there are lots of tests that would show that same relationship. In fact, uh, one could argue that most tests of knowledge or skill would show a similar relationship. Uh, yet, when we try to interpret our scores, we're trying to make a specific interpretation about a very specific uh, uh, form of knowledge or type of skill. I might see the exact same relationship whether my test uh, measured uh, you know, knowledge of pulmonary medicine, knowledge of cardiology, uh, or uh, skills at uh, suturing the hand laceration uh, and yet uh, I am when I'm when I'm uh, interpreting this type of evidence I am assuming that this difference in scores reflects the specific uh, construct knowledge or skill that I'm trying to assess uh, so the problem is if we find this proposed relationship of improvement in scores across training levels, it confirms uh, that our assessment is performing the way it should, but it tells us nothing about whether the assessment is actually measuring what we intended to measure. Now, if we find that there is no relationship as we would suspect if we found if we if we suspect that medical students should do worst and attendings should do best and we don't find a difference that would indicate a problem or conversely if this were a test of ethics or professionalism and we would expect that students and attendings would perform the same and yet we find a, an unexpected difference that would be a problem so the expert novice comparison is interesting to the extent that it does not confirm what we would expect. But if it only confirms what we expected to find, then it really adds very little to our validation efforts. And then finally, uh, but last but certainly not least, 
my final pet peeve is uh, when people talk about validated instruments or validated tools or uh, the validity of the instrument. What we really need to be talking about is the validity of the scores and even more specifically the validity of the interpretations and uses of those scores. Uh, the same instrument applied to different learners, different uh, populations, will, can show dramatically different uh, uh, results when it comes to the validity evidence. And more importantly, uh, in MESIC's framework, uh, a lot of the validation evidence that we'll be collecting has reference to the scores or the uses of scores rather than being a property of the instrument itself. So we really need to be talking about the validity of interpretations and the validity of uses, not the validity of instruments and tools. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, so from the point of view of somebody who um, <clears throat> is interested in um, trying to assess um, how learners perform on procedures. Um, uh, and bronchoscopy is the thing that, that I spend most of my time working on, so I, I've sort of thought a lot about that. Then there are certainly a number of tools out there where it seems like the only evidence that is available is this sort of novice versus expert um, comparison. Um, and uh, and, and since that's what's sort of available, um, it, it does seem like the obvious way to, to um, assess a tool. Um, what, what other things do you think um, should be studied? What are, the, what are the less obvious bits that are hard for um, those of us who haven't spent so long thinking about validity evidence to come up with? Yeah, well, you're, you're right. Uh, uh, certainly for procedural assessments, but I think for all educational assessments, uh, the expert novice comparison is very commonly reported. And in fact, in our systematic review of over 400 studies, it was the only evidence pre presented for 73% of those studies, which is amazing. Um, so I agree with you. Uh, so then what should investigators be looking at? Well, I think you can kind of follow a sequence and think first about the content. Uh, how did I come up with this specific instrument? Uh, and the items or stations or cases on the instrument, how did I come up with the raters? How were they trained? Uh, second, uh, I'd probably look at the reliability of the scores. Uh, and in particular, I'd make sure that I've looked at the reliability in my uh, population. So if I'm looking at medical students, I'd want to look at the reliability in medical students. If I'm intending this to look at senior residents, I'd want to look at the reliability in senior residents. It's very important not to look at the reliability across a heterogeneous group uh, that might contain, for example, third-year medical students and senior residents, unless you expect their skill to really be the same in that procedure. The reason is that that heterogeneity, uh, the mixture of performance abilities, will artificially inf inflate the reliability. You'll get an artificially high number with your reliability uh, compared to if you looked at the scores within the learner population to whom you plan to apply the 
the instrument. The next, th once I was done looking at reliability, I would probably look next at a different type of relations with other variables. So uh, we've already talked about the expert novice comparison and said that that's not particularly useful. What is useful is to compare your scores against scores from an instrument that is conceptually related to yours. Now, I emphasize that it's got to be conceptually related, and that might be conceptually related in a favorable way, where you expect a strong positive correlation. It might be conceptually related in a negative way, where high scores on your instrument would lead to low scores on another. Or you might conceive that there would be no relationship between your scores, that high scores on your instrument would have no bearing on the scores from the other. It's important that uh, investigators... Uh, specify this relationship up front. What we often see in the literature is that authors will perform the correlation analysis and then interpret the results in the way that is most favorable to their uh, interpretation uh, for their specific instrument and the scores. For example, if they find a strong positive correlation, they'll say, oh, look, uh, these two instruments are correlated. That's wonderful. It confirms what we suspected. Or if they find no relationship, they'll say, oh, look, there's no relationship between these scores. That's wonderful. It confirms what we expected. But they never stated up front what their expectation was. So it's simply basically patting themselves on the back for whatever they find is good and favorable. The, the far more rigorous approach is to specify up front what you are expecting and then look to see whether you actually find it in fact. Uh, the, the last piece of evidence that I encourage people to look for is what's called consequences evidence. And this is not looking at outcomes, uh, to, uh, the scores themselves, but rather to look to see what impact the assessment, the act of assessment, had on some type of um, impact down the road. Uh, so, for example, why do we give assessments in the first place? Why do we even waste our time and waste our learners' time putting them through the pain of taking a test? And the answer is, at some level, we hope that that test is going to be better uh, for society, better for them, better for our institution. There's a purpose behind it. We intend that purpose to make somebody's life better. And so when we look at consequences evidence, what we want to look at is, did the act of taking the test and whatever we did in response to those scores makes someone's life better. Were the students better off because they got remediation or got some type of award or got the residency of their choice? Uh, was the public protected from an incompetent physician? Uh, were teachers improved because they got feedback on their teaching activities where certain learners were falling through the cracks and so they were better able to meet the needs of those students? and so forth. These are all examples of consequences evidence. At the end of the day, when we give an assessment, what we really care about is that we meet the ultimate goal of making lives better. For that reason, authors are increasingly coming to the conclusion that consequences evidence is probably the single most important source. Of course, it's also the hardest to, to achieve, and so I wouldn't suggest people start off by looking at consequences evidence. I'd suggest they build step-by-step, step, looking first at the content, then the reliability, then the relationships, and then finally looking at the consequences as a kind of the, the um, icing on the cake or the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. The, the, the 
end result, not the starting point. That's great. And and as you talk about this, um, it really strikes me how um, what you're really describing is sort of a research program. Um, and that I, I wanted to make the comparison with um, you know the rest of research um, that we do in medicine um, in in a couple of ways. One is that um, you you talk about you know, predicting the correlation up front in terms of relations with other variables. And this is, this is just a standard part of research. I mean, you should have a hypothesis and you should state what that is in advance, create a, a, a research um, a study that, um, that really evaluates that um, rather than just creating data and sort of digging around and looking for what comes up in terms of correlations. Um, and then the other, the other aspect that struck me is really very um, similar to any other research is the idea that you're not trying to, in one study, come up with all of the validity evidence for an assessment tool. Um, this, this is a process. It's going to take multiple studies, and um, you, you should think about it in that way. How does that strike you? No, I, I would agree. I, I, I'd even take it a step further and say, um, in clinical research, we think about phase one, phase two, phase three studies. And I think in education research, we can adopt a similar mindset that at the very beginning of a program of research, uh, we can be more exploratory and uh, looking at widely different a avenues and angles as we become uh, further along in our process uh, we would we want to be more refined and, and more thoughtful about the 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 things that we're studying but but I also agree with the other things you said and in fact I would even take the hypothesis point a step further you mentioned it in, re in regards to the relationships with other variables evidence and I wholeheartedly agree it is just a hypothesis but I would extend that to say that uh, validation researchers should be creating a hypothesis about the entire set of validity evidence. They should be thinking carefully what type of evidence would really support my interpretations of these scores. If I were at another institution, if I were reading uh, the report, what evidence would I want to read to convince me that these scores are actually useful and giving me meaningful results? As they think carefully about that and think through the different sources of evidence, they should write down uh, what they would expect to find, what would be the minimal acceptable level of evidence, what would be the minimal level of reliability, for example, what would they expect as the minimal uh, acceptable correlation coefficient, and so forth. They should write all that down, explicitly stating their hypotheses up front, and then go out and do the research studies to collect that evidence. Now, you said that there's a program of research, and I think that's exactly on target. You also said that we wouldn't expect to get all of the results in a single research study, and I agree with that also. However, I would just put in the caveat that uh, writing a research report and publishing the results of the evidence one piece of evidence at a time is not something to be desired. Uh, we'd probably call that salami slicing, cutting the yeah. research into the smallest possible uh, unit in order to maximize the number of publications. And that's simply not helpful uh, to the field. It's a waste of uh, journal space, and, and there's problems when it comes to citing work like that. I'd encourage investigators to, yes, 
perhaps it takes two or three studies to collect the evidence, but I would encourage them to package it together in meaningful chunks uh, so that uh, someone who reads uh, that report can come away with a sense that they they have consumed something meaningful and can turn around and do something useful with those results. That was the first part of my interview with Dr. Cook. In the next podcast, Dr. Cook will give some practical advice on how to design studies to gather validity evidence, and I'll describe Kane's validity framework.